Hello to all the people, just a quick note before we start. There were some technical issues at Mike's end, so I've done what I can to clean up the audio, but unfortunately Mike's dulcet tones did not come through the internet quite as clearly as they might. I hope you'll bear with us. I've put a full transcription of this episode in the show notes, which you can find at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. So if you have any trouble following what Mike's saying, please refer to that, that should help. So on with the show. Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Michael Chidester. Michael is the director of Wittenow.com, which, for those of you who are new to historical martial arts and may not have even heard of it yet, it is a fantastic internet repository of scans and of historical fencing treatises dating back as far as you can imagine. And there are just hundreds of them there. It's this extraordinary resource. And not content with that gigantic contribution to the art of arms, Michael is also the author of several books, including uh, Concordance of Fiore's Plays, The Maya Study Companion, a translation of 3227A, from which you can gather that he's something of a Fiore man, something of a Maya researcher, something of a Lichtenauer person. And he has also got into producing very high-quality facsimiles, first of the Thought Manuscript. I have that on my bookshelf right now, and it is a glory and a delight. And he is at the time of recording, but it'll be done by the time the show goes out. He has a uh, crowdfunding campaign to raise money to do Fury's Getty Manuscript in glorious, glorious hand-bound leather gorgeousness. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Okay. It's lovely to see you. Now, just so we can orient everyone, whereabouts in the world are you? I currently live in a small city outside of Boston, Massachusetts, um, in the United States of America. Lovely. And I, I saw you there uh, a year or so ago. So, um, yeah. What event was that? Oh, that's when I was, I was teaching in Boston. Uh, yeah, for, you, uh, you taught our seminar at Athena. That's right. Yeah. We met up um, after. Yes, and thanks for the technical hitches at the beginning of this <laughs> this podcast recording. Next time, uh, next time I am over that way, I definitely owe you a beer. <laughs> okay, so um, let's let's kick off straight in. Now, obviously, from your published works, we can tell you have a pretty broad set of interests. But what would you say are your main research interests? So. Um, I, as anyone who's looked at Lichten Hour can tell, I've looked at a, a lot of different sources. Um, but really, and this is something that people sort of anticipate that everything that's on Lichten Hour, I've studied in depth. But you don't actually have to really understand something to post it on a website. Um, True. So and a lot of these things. Yeah, I mean, you would have to be thousands of years old to have studied all those things in depth. A lot of it is what I do with that is, is a lot of copying and pasting and light proofreading. So I don't have to process all of it. I and mean, a lot of the work I'm looking at around that is just doing bibliographic research, trying to find out the history of the book as opposed to its teachings. Um, as far as the stuff that I've studied in depth and studied on a physical level, um, Fiora was my first love. That was the first treatise I ever tried to interpret on my own. Um, but I can't say that I've really ever became a theorist. I was never in a club that studied it. Um, 
and I and so it was all on my own time. And I went through all the dagger plays, most of the rest of the book. And then I think I've done the sword stuff very slightly, and that's about it. So there's a lot of the other teachings that are I have no experience with outside of translating them. Um, sure. but, and also, likewise, Meyer, I'm involved with mostly because I love the Meyer Firefighter Guild, um, which is a, a network of Meyer club, focus clubs. And I've been to their annual symposium several times, and I like to support them however I can. So I've done some Meyer research more on that level. What I study in terms of physical practice is early 15th century Lichtenauer fencing. Um, and primarily monsters, although I've been trying to get into armor for the past few years and had financial woes that kept me out of it so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you basically have to be able to afford a second car before you can afford yeah. a suit of armor. Oh, I don't even yeah. have a first car, so it's... it's <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was illegal in America. Every, every United States citizen has to have at least one car. Well, if you okay. live in certain cities, you can get around it where we actually have civilized public transportation. <laughs> Only sure. certain cities, though. Okay, so so you're getting into the armored combat side of Lithuania as as best you can. Uh, I'd um, like to. I've been on a horse about twice in my life, so I haven't really focused on that much either. And really, to, right. be, uh, to, to really understand that, I think you probably have to do all three. So I'm not there. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a tiny bit of experience of mounted combat, enough to know that you have to be a much better rider than I am to be any good at it. Uh, and uh, actually, actually, listeners to the show should check out my interview with um, uh, Jen. Oh, my God, I'm blanking. I will edit this. Hang on a sec. What's her name? Fuck. Oh, Jen Landau. Jen Landles, thank you, yeah. So, yeah, so listeners to the show should check out the interview with Jen Landles where we talk about mounted combat quite a bit because that's sort of her specialty. Um, but, okay, so obviously beginners aren't going to go out buying a horse and a suit of armour. So where would you recommend as a Lichtenau person that a beginner would who's interested in, in doing some actual book study, where, should, where do you think they should start? Well, I'm, I'm full of opinions about this, but I think that the uncontroversial place to start would be um, there are three particular glasses, um, which on the internet we refer to as RDL, which is um, Sigmund Ringdeck, Peter, Peter, Peter von Danzig, and a guy named Lev. And those three are fairly consistent in their teachings. They're, they have some small differences, but they're essentially teaching the same set of plays for the most part. So they're a reasonable starting point. Um, and Harry Ridgway out of Australia recently published a, or was designed to be a very accessible translation of Suda Peter von Danzig, um, which is available on Amazon, I believe, or if not, the internet will tell you how to find it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll very, find it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. I'll so find very, it, yeah. Very simple language and try to make it as understandable as possible. And I've done the same with my translation of 3227A, although I can't mm -hmm. say I did quite as good a job at simplifying and, and all that that he did, but that was my aim. Um, and 3227A is not part of that tight grouping of similar treatises, 
but seems a very different approach to the same system of Wiccan hours. So I think it's a, a good complement. And when you read them both together and try to match up, try to uh, try to keep in mind that they're describing the same thing, you get some really good insight into what Wiccan hour might have been teaching. Excellent. Now, a small ignoble part of me was hoping you were going to say, you know what, beginners, they should really start with Fiore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, um, no. That's fair. Fiore <laughs> you know, seems like he's missing some of the stuff that beginners might want. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's they they both leave out things that the other one puts in. Um, I, I yeah, we we could we could we could discuss the differences. In fact, one of the most common questions I ever get asked is, "What's the difference between Fiore and Lichtenauer?" Right. And to me, it's mostly well, it's a question of what they choose to put in and what they th- assume is obvious and so leave out. Um, yeah, there's there's that. There's also seems to be some technical and tactical preferences they have. I mean, sure. just on possibly even just on a personal level, the way they think about fencing seems to differ a bit um, from what we can tell. But in both cases, they're giving what I, what I suspect is a, a somewhat advanced work that leaves out the, the basics that might be more similar. Um, but trying to understand what the basic fencing is it's left out is, is something that consumes a lot of people in HEMA. And we, don't, we still don't have great answers for that. Yeah, I I would tend to think that the the sort of the foundations for Lichtenau's longsword, um, the sort of the basic plays are all in the Messer. Yeah, that's uh, it depends on what Messer sources you're looking at. Really, Mercutio is not a basic source by any means. Um, but also, like those hints in Lichtenau about what he views as common fencing and sort of what he expects his students to already be familiar with so he doesn't have to explain them uh, from basic things like how to cut properly and how to hold the sword and how to step properly to even some techniques are named without explaining them and you have to sort of tease out what the what the meaning of it is when he tells you things like make a half cut um, or even sometimes has it describes what your opponent is going to be doing um, as things that he's, uh, he's teaching elsewhere in the treatise. So you can sort of, there's, there's ways to approach this and Jake Norwood and I have worked off and on on a paper trying to capture this for several years now. And I say we, he's done, he did a lot of the heavy lifting and he sent it to me for revisions and for, for um, fleshing out. So it's really his baby and has been for a long time, but trying to understand what the German common fencing is. And you know, questions like, is it the same as Fiore? Um, are they teaching something and then Lichtenauer is breaking away? And the answer is not exactly, but kind of. Fiore has a lot in common with this common fencing idea, um, even though he also sort of riffs on it and, and goes off in a different direction. Well, I, as I see it, uh, Fiore has like the foundation. And well, I, you, know, I, you know, I have my card game, Audacia. The... Mm-hmm. Um, or audacia, as most English people pronounce it. Uh, we have we have three basic decks, which are characters that do Fury style longsword, and then we have an expansion pack, which is the Lichtenau stuff. So it's literally I, I see a lot of the Lichtenau longsword stuff as an expansion pack on the basic game. Yeah, and there's certainly an extent to which that's true. Although I think that the more someone gets into the weeds of the other techniques, 
the farther he gets away from anything that would lead into Lichtenauer. So like if you take basic theory, then it's a great starting point. If you really want to deep dive into things like the strato plays and so on, then you start venturing away again. Um, yeah. This is my read on it. And you get into yeah, a, a, a style of that doesn't quite line up. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I can see that. Um, now, <laughs> you see, it's much easier to have this sort of conversation where there's a couple of long swords lying around, and we yeah. can just pick them up. And, yeah, and for this and for that, and uh, it's sort of it's, it's a it's a it's a weakness of the format, but we'll just have to we'll just have to bear with. Um, okay, now you're, I guess you're probably best known, at least outside of Boston, for being an architect of Wigtonau which I talked about a little bit in the introduction. So I would be curious to know, and I'm sure the listeners would too, how did Wiktonau start and you know, what, what is it like producing that kind of resource? So something that most people have, have forgotten if they ever knew is that I didn't actually start Wiktonau. Um, okay. It was Ben Michaels, who is, was is a, a guy who was at the time in Maryland um, with MKDF, and he's in Pittsburgh now, and no longer fences. But he was one, of, also one of the founders of Longpoint um, and chief organizers, and has, was involved in a lot of different projects over the years in his SEMA time. He started it, and I signed on maybe six months after. So this would have been in late 2009. He sent, he had this idea of what he envisioned as the WikiLeaks of HEMA, where he had this this notion, which was and it's somewhat true that there were a lot of resources in the, in the HEMA world that were sort of hoarded and not easily accessible, particularly scans at the time where there was this black market trade in, in manual scans. And you, had, yes. you had to know the right people and have some rare stuff yourself if you wanted to get the really good stuff that you could trade. Yeah, um, and sometimes you had to like hand over a, a grand to some library somewhere, uh, which I have mm-hmm. done on occasion. Um, so if you wanted like the, the good Getty scans or the Paris scans when, when Florius was mm-hmm. finally released, you had to know somebody and you had to, to be able to, to trade for them. Uh, but also there were translations that were passed around sort of privately and, and yeah. so on. And, and Ben Michaels wanted to consolidate not just the translations that were publicly available on the, the open internet, mm-hmm. And, and scanned and so forth, but also the secret stuff. Anyway, he was inviting people to post anonymously their hordes so we could have it in one place. But his concept was to organize all of this material on a technique by technique basis. And thereby oh, wow. he said he would solve all of the interpretation arguments once and for all because clearly <laughs> once the text had been laid out. He was an idealist, wasn't he? <laughs> once the text had been laid out properly the correct interpretation would be obvious. Um, right, and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then this was the idea. And after he discovered that wasn't true, he lost interest yeah. in the project and it passed on to me. So oh, I enough. started working on it from a very different um, uh, point where I was, when I got the email that he sent out to about 10 people in it was November 20, 2009, um, announcing this idea he had and wanting everyone to buy in and contribute. And I, like several others, said this will never work for all these reasons. 
but later on I got interested and I started started making pages. And what I was doing was doing organizing it by master and by treatise, which uh, is what the wiki currently has. Whereas if you look at the sidebar, you'll notice a section called techniques that's mostly empty. It doesn't have very many pages. It never has had that many pages. So that section is the original Lichtenauer model, and the stuff that currently exists is the new model. And what I was doing was taking... So I started with Fiora, I mentioned, as my first master I studied. And I did what I think a lot of Fiora people did back in those days, was take translations by Matt Easton and by Mark Lancaster and Rob Lovett um, of the Exiles, and the Night of the Wild Rose translation, and all these bits and pieces of theory, and try to line them up into a concordance. Um, and I, I built my first one, I used the terrible scratchy black and white scans and put it in a big binder. Um, and then I started noticing right around 2008 or nine, when I took over my first club as an instructor, which I think was in 2008, um, I started noticing that there was a lot of similar work needed for Lichtenauer texts. Um, right. and right. started putting together some concordances of Dear Tagadorn's transcriptions and some other bits of transcription by other people. And, and all these stuff was just sitting on my computer and I decided, wouldn't it be cool to, instead of just dumping text onto pages and moving on, if we tried to organize it into tables like this, which at the very least would cut down on, trans on the necessary translations and so on. Um, because something that people forget, uh, even people who were around back then, is that if you go back 10 years in HEMA, most people were not, were studying as a very different perspective than we have today, um, particularly on the German side. I mean, Fiore hasn't changed that much over the years, because I think the Fiore um, students had a pretty decent grasp early on of at least what text exists. Um, yes. And while the interpretation has advanced by leaps and bounds, the actual, the source material is what it is, and it is what it has been. Um, and we've sure. just gotten, and maybe incrementally better translations since the early 2000s. But Lichtenauer people had this tendency, and, and other systems, this tendency to fixate on a single manuscript. And right. so you had someone who would claim to be an expert in the Danzig manuscript, by which they meant the, the manuscript that's currently in Rome that has Danzig in it, um, and or the Ringdeck people who would fixate on the Dresden manuscript and believe that everything in Dresden was written by Ringdeck, which is not true. Um, right. You may or may not know. Um, he wrote yes. maybe two or three sections out of this manuscript. So people would silo their information like this. And I, I have this idea that maybe we could break people out of this perspective by completely dispensing with discussion of the actual physical books of the manuscripts and start talking about masters. And I wanted everybody to get a better, clear idea of what they were studying by associating it with actual people instead of with the, a particular copy or a particular version. Even the theater people to some extent had this blind spot where they would only be studying the Getty or maybe they'd be studying the Pisani Dosi, but they weren't looking as broadly as I wanted them to. Um, so I started putting these pages up just with the hope of look and see how many different copies of this thing exist um, and see that, you know, and, and ideally getting translations that were of more than one manuscript 
And that was what I set out to make. And that's what currently exists. So every single treatise on Lichtenauer is hooked into a master page, unless it's completely anonymous and unique. Um, and that was, I think, a successful bit of mine to try and change the way we talked about fencing by now we have people who study Ringdeck, but they're aware they're looking at Glasgow and they're looking at Dresden and they're looking at, at other things. The people who study Pseudo-Peter von Danzig and have more than one copy, you'd love it to exist in 11 copies. So there's a lot of different variations that people are now aware of and embracing. And I think that was thanks to Wiccanauer more than anything else. But that was my idea was I have all this stuff and it's helped me study Lichtenauer and teach it to my students. So how can I make this available to everybody else? And Wiccanauer was the vehicle that I saw that already existed that could house that stuff. Right. And I didn't know at the time I would be taking over, but I just wanted to put the information out there. Right. Okay. And that's yeah, what I, yeah, absolutely. I, and what you know, people listening to us for the last 20 minutes or so may not have realized is that it's not just longsword stuff. There is rapier treatises and small sword treatises and you know, pretty much everything you can think of, pretty much every source we know about where scans are available, those scans are there on Wix and well, Arrow. What? We have an asterisk. So we it's so the problem is it's a huge, huge topic to tackle. And I've been on this for ten years now. And we've only got we've only got complete coverage up to about sixteen hundred. And so there's spider shots in the seventeenth century. So you've got the major rapier treatises, but not the minor ones. Um and but, but Michael, you're comparing the Wix now as it is now to what it might become in 10 years' time. I'm comparing it to what we had to go through to get one shitty photocopy 20 years ago. And it is, it is night and day. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And it must be um, – it's not just a question of finding scans and then sticking them up on the internet, is it? There's an awful lot of um, sort of cross – referencing from one to another and providing transcriptions and translations and all that sort of thing. So how do you go about that? So fortunately, it's not just me. So I'm the primary person who puts the content on Wiktenauer pages. And I've hoped over the years that I would get people who had to help with that and it's never really happened that much. But um, people do help out periodically for, uh, for a bit and they get burned out and that's, and that's life. Um, but the, the, the actual work of finding original treatises is not something I do. I mean, I try, I look, but I, I have yet to discover something that no one's ever discovered yet. Every time I think I have, I find a SFI post from 2004 by Matt Gallus um, <laughs> and realize that someone got there first. Sure. But, um, so that work is really important. And there's a lot of people who are earnestly digging through library catalogs, trying to find new treatises. Um, the, the transcription is not something that I do very much. I've transcribed things. I mean, I have the ability to, but that's a lot of time for one page, and I usually don't. I'm currently working on the transcription of uh, Salvatore Fabris from the scans you provided, actually. Um, All right. Which I, I'm doing one page a day and hope to eventually be done with that. But there are a lot of other people who like Lady uh, uh, von North and Dear Tagadon, who really um, have put a lot more time and effort into transcribing things. So I can take their work and just, with permission, of course, 
and put it on pages. And likewise, when people produce free translations, get those on there. So a lot of what I'm doing, <laughs> excuse me, a lot of what I end up doing is just the work of organizing and cataloging. Okay. You know, if I had a, a major contribution apart from those concordances, it would be really trying to flesh out questions of the provenance and the publication history of a lot of these texts, which is work that's never really been done that I've been able to find. So, you are the man who discovered the Getty Concordance. Who managed to prize that out of the out of the Getty Museum? <laughs> uh, the what's the Getty Concordance? Oh, the the um, sorry, not, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm it's a bit late here. Um, thanks to the time difference. Not the Concordance collation. The collation of the Getty manuscript. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, and that's something that that's more esoteric that I I'm interested in that I try to put into Wiki Hour, which is the actual collation of manuscripts. And I've gotten so this is something I've gotten more interested in, in the past few years. A few minutes ago, I gave a spiel about how I tried to push everyone away from studying individual manuscripts, um, yeah. but then. Uh, about at one point last year, I think it was so last uh, a year ago, March, I was at one point and I gave a lecture and Charles Lynn came up to me after the lecture, who's brilliant um, and really, really interested in developing uh, and understanding the context of, of historical martial arts. He's a pretty new guy, but has really, really um, pushed a lot of envelopes already. Um, and he was asking me questions about manuscripts, things like, so you know how big this manuscript is, like physically, like what, what, what are the dimensions of the cover? Um, can, we, can we figure out who this manuscript was for based on its physical properties? You know, the handwriting and the, and the size and so on. If it's a pocket-sized book versus a, a giant book um, and, and things like that. And I started and I, it, it sort of brought into clarity for me the fact that maybe it was time to go back and start studying individual manuscripts again, but not from a myopic perspective or a silent perspective, but start looking at them to understand the teachings better and see if we can learn from the physical manuscript more about the text, as opposed to limiting ourselves the way we used to. It might actually open new horizons. So I well, started looking really more. Is you need that? to know, it's really important to know that, for example, if there seems to be a, a, an odd segue in the manuscript, if you look at the collation, you know whether, well, those two pages have always been together, so this segue is deliberate, or actually there may be pages missing, and looking at the way the manuscript is bound, we can see that that bit of vellum would have been attached to that bit of vellum over there, so maybe it would be something on this sort of topic. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's this, this, really important. One thirty-three community has been talking about for a long time because, for better or worse, they are stuck studying one manuscript um, all these years, and it's been well known for at least ten years that there were, well, it's been at least partially known for at least ten years that there are missing pages and pages sure. that were rearranged, and there's yeah. been several different academic papers published trying to analyze the collation and figure out what the missing content was and what it might, have, yeah, I mean, what pages they were and what might it might have said. Um, so there was that, but for other manuscripts, they've never had this level of scrutiny, partly because 
especially for the German stuff, there's so many manuscripts that there aren't, there aren't that, that, that it's hard to actually drill down to one of them when there's mm-hmm. you know, so much at the buffet. So you, you can find great catalogs that have like 50 manuscripts in them with a summary description of each one, but not as much with the deep, um, careful analysis of all of it. Um, although Daniel's has been trying to, to raise the bar in that area. And, and as you said, I, I've been partly harvesting his work and partly looking through catalogs myself, finding and, and diagramming manuscripts that way to give a better sense of what's in them, what might be missing, um, and how they might have been rearranged and, and abused and so on over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other interesting things you can learn from manuscripts by studying this way too, which is things like marginal notes, which the Gary family doesn't have, but like the Paris Fiore has a bunch of, of notes um, on that are translational notes. So um, Kendra Brown and Rebecca Garber, who were in my study group, did a translation of the Flores manuscript a few years ago. And one thing they noticed and made, made take note of was that someone had gone through and carefully written out um, French and I think sometimes Latin translations of tricky words and they're writing it out their best guess for what the words meant um, in tiny script above the words. So if you go in, you can find these notes and also in the margins, some of which were cut off because the book was resized um, during the rebinding and like maybe an inch of margin was cut off on all sides. Oh, oh it's hideous when that happens. I can't bear yeah, it. it. If you look at the Senyo page, all of the text beneath the elephant's foot is cut off, and all yeah. you have is the big swoosh from the um, the pilcro, the chapter mark. Yeah. So, so yeah, and it, so someone did terrible things to that book, and possibly erased even better um, marginal notes. But you, there, you find you can tell that at the very least, someone at some point tried to study this manuscript and wrote down the the sort of study notes which are completely blank manuscripts, then you can ask, did anyone ever read this? Why is it so empty in a time period when people were accustomed to writing in books, you know? Was right. it study ever studied, or was it just owned by a rich family and kept as a sort of prize? Yeah, um, I mean, so it could just be a presentation. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, just, I just pulled the Florius manuscript. I've got um, the facsimile I'm holding is... The scans that I bought from um, the Bibliothèque Nationale Française for hideous amounts of money, and I got them. You know how you can get uh, photo albums printed up. Mm-hmm. So I just got them. I just got them printed up as a photo album, um, and so basically, it's a pretty good facsimile of the manuscript. And I just dug it up to have a look at the appallingly abused pages, and yeah, it's it's. I haven't actually looked at this book for a while. Now I'm looking at it from what you've just said. It's, it's, it really jumps out at you, what's been done to it. The old scans that are all wavy and everything? Uh, no, these are, these are well, I've, I've had them for a long time. Um, but they are, I think, I mean, they're, they're pretty good quality. You can you can see the, the, um, the grain in the vellum and the ink smudges and where where a pen stroke has has gone a little strong or a yeah. little light. But they seem to scan the manuscripts at least a few times. And one of them is all smoothed out so the paper is very flat. 
And the other one, I think they use an overhead camera because the parchment is all is creased and you can actually see all the creases and see where it's uh, hasn't yeah, been done tightly enough. Looking at mine is the overhead camera one. Yeah. I got those scanned illicitly from Asa Hartikainen early on in the Lichtenauer project. He's one of the secret benefactors of Lichtenauer because he sent me basically a huge, like many gigabytes of scans and documents that he had. That he had. I guess he was getting out of, uh, was trying to focus more on just the, uh, the Bolognese stuff. And so mm -hmm. he sent me all of his German stuff and, and the early scans and so on that he didn't need anymore to help with an hour. So I got a bunch of cool stuff from him that I didn't even know existed, including Excellent. the first scans, which cost like, I forget how many thousand dollars back then. No, I got a friend of mine who was a academic at a university to, actually no, it was one of my students who was, who was training at the university, uh, doing some degree at the University of Helsinki. And I got him to order it and he got the academic discount. Ah, so. nice. Yeah, so the whole thing, it was still an ungodly amount of money, like 50 euros per page. Yeah. Yeah, it was, right. it was It was. basically um, like a month's salary for a bunch of pictures. I mean, this is, this is something people don't always grasp in HEMA, which is that all these scans, someone actually paid for them at some point. And even the ones that are now free, like the Paris scans are now free, you uh, don't typically don't just digitize things for other initiatives. You have to pay them money, and then once the scans exist, they'll often put them online. But if they, but otherwise, uh, the digitization plans tend to focus on the really famous stuff and not obscure fencing treatises. So, sure. Yeah, and that, yeah, the scanning department in the library or museum or whatever, they have work to do that is not making fences happy sadly yeah. so yeah get, getting them to to apply their attention to the books we're interested in can can be quite a quite a job well Lichtenauer is pretty flush these days so i can i can pay for a lot of things using Lichtenauer money I mean, we had a fundraiser in 2015 that still has lots of money in the bank so wow i haven't had to have another one since then we have like twenty thousand dollars in the bank still waiting for waiting for him a project okay. to yeah, not, not enough to not enough to hire employees, but more than we actually <laughs> need to spend on on uh, scans and, and server space and so forth. So we I, I I've probably paid for twenty digitizations in the past couple of years. Um, sometimes at ridiculous fees. But ideally less than a thousand dollars. Sure. Uh, um, for the most part. Just on that topic, um, it just occurred to me that there are people listening to the show who might have time on their hands. Um, if they wanted to like volunteer to help with the Wipnow project, what would you advise that they did? So there's, and there are several major, um, certain categories of pages that do different kind of work done. So partly it depends on just what their skills are. There's also a whole lot of copying and pasting work that needs to be done, which is the most tedious kind of work. It's where most of sure. my time is spent on. Um, right. It's doing that and editing manual scans. Because um, I, I have to edit them and so on before I put them online in the first place. Um, so if you want to do that kind of work, they should get in touch with me. 
and I can recommend projects. But there's also many, many books and manuscripts that need to be transcribed, um, which is slightly more skilled labor, but pretty easy to learn um, mm -hmm. in some cases. There's some scripts that are much easier than others, certainly. And translation is the hardest one. Yeah, um, tell me about we, it. We, we have a lot of stuff that needs to be translated that people haven't got to if they ever will. So, I mean, I keep, okay. I keep records of all the... Excuse me. Of all the work that is sort of shovel ready and, and just mm -hmm. waiting for me to have time to get to it or for someone who's interested to get to it. And I can recommend projects to anybody who wants to take it on, sort of scale to their abilities and, and amount of free time. Um, okay. So, how should they get in touch with you? I'm easily reachable on Facebook. You can also email me with, at mchatafiliabitsanhour.com. It's pretty easy. To, to get a hold of me that way. I don't respond to emails in a very timely fashion, but I'll get back to you with those two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know, I know, you're, you're not that speedy. I'm actually, I'm dead flattered when you reply to one of my emails in less than like two or three days, but I respect that actually. <laughs> I have a, I have a pretty strict policy, right? If, because, um, you know, your email inbox is everybody else's to-do list for you. <clears throat> And, and random strangers on the internet don't actually have a right to your attention. Um, you know, if, if they, if somebody's like bought one of my books or courses or whatever and emails me with some kind of problem, then fine, they have a right to my attention. But an awful lot of stuff comes in, which is basically people wanting me to help them with something. And so I have a, a, a strict policy that if it's somebody I don't know, unless it's something, some kind of, you know, tech support for something I've sold them, there's a minimum 24 hours before I reply to the email, right? And sometimes two or three days. And if it comes in on a Thursday, I might not get to it on a Monday because Saturdays and Sundays don't count, right? And that is, that's just, that's just to make it really, just to make it so that people, when they get in touch with me, don't get used to the idea that they can have my attention whenever they want it. They can send me an email and I will get to it in due course and I will reply to it helpfully but I'm not going to necessarily do it today or even tomorrow or possibly even not this week. Um, oh, and certainly never at the weekend. So, yeah, I, I think you have absolutely every right to be, should we say, um, a bit um, slack on the email front. Yeah, recently someone had sent me a draft of a translation they wanted me to give comments on. And when I didn't respond within two or three days, they were posting on Reddit asking why it's taking me so long? Like, is there someone else I can talk to? And like, like they, before I, I barely even noticed that it was there and thought about responding and they were already complaining about it on Reddit. So I feel like I should set expectations and then stick to them, which is I'm not good at answering email. And honestly, it's not always a high priority for me. And you know what? I don't know anybody. I don't care about people who email me. It's just that I have limited amount of time for things. And, sure. and, and let's face it, nobody puts really quick at answering email on their CV. It's, it's not actually what people need you for. Yeah, and there's also the fact that I don't actually look at my email inbox that often. So I may not even notice it for the first 24 hours. <laughs> Very sensible. But I, I do try to respond eventually to everything, though. Right. Have faith. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yes, yes. Be patient. Have faith. Patience is a virtue, especially for martial arts people. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, um, one thing that I tend to ask people on this show 
because everyone has an opinion. Uh, I know you do do longsword fencing. So what are your thoughts on protective equipment? <laughs> I mean, I hate it personally. Right, I, okay. So I came up through Arma originally, and we didn't actually use protective equipment. So that's um, ARMA, yes? Yeah, the Association for Renaissance Martial Arts. Right. Um, when I was a, a young, dumb college student, um, right, so I, I started when I was 18 years old, fresh out of, right. out of high school. Um, and within three weeks of beginning college, I had discovered the local HEMA club in uh, 2001. So at that time, HEMA protective gear didn't really exist. Um, and repurposed gear from other sports was not something that we used that much. So we had like three fencing masks for the whole club. Uh, for 30 people, and we did that, and you know, we thought that motocross gloves were all the hand protection you'd ever need. So <laughs> <Okay>. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not accustomed to protective gear, even though I, I've owned some for many years. I, I try to stay light with it. I feel like the heavy tournament gear restricts mobility to an unacceptable degree, and mm-hmm. yeah, you can train to get around those limitations but you could also spend that time training something else. So I don't see what the point is. I mean, for myself, I fenced in a, a sport fencing coach's jacket, um, which I used to have an AP jacket from Spess, and I eventually gave it away and went back to a light jacket. And I have some pads I can wear underneath it if I really need to. And I've also switched to a, a complex tilted longsword that's based on some early to mid 16th century examples in museums. So okay. it's uh, essentially a swept hilt that only covers the lead hand. Wow. Uh, with, uh, okay. with four ports, you know, it's got the, the closed top ports and the wider bottom ports and uh, three bar knuckle bow. And that so you basically I, welded a buckler to your longsword. Okay. What's that? You basically welded a buckler to your longsword. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so. I, I thought, you know, what's the, what's the proper historical solution to hand protection? And the answer is not giant gauntlets, um, no. certainly not in the time period we're looking at, the answer was increase the protection on the sword itself. So that allows me to fence with a, a light fencing glove on my right hand and then a bigger glove on my left hand, um, which okay. is the compromise that I make. And I think I, I, I've been encouraging lots of people to move in this direction of a not using lighter gear except when they're required to wear heavier gears. So I think at least in the U.S. on the East Coast, they've seen positive moves in the past few years of people gearing down, um, even for tournaments. So people are, are more often showing up with the bare minimum gear for tournaments and not the really heavy um, equipment that, that some of the European makers are, are selling now, um, which is a positive development in my opinion. I think that there's a lot that you can't learn as well. I'm not going to say you yep. can't learn at all, but I think that the gear inhibit certain kinds of lessons sure. and certainly when i've done things like like the the training with sharp swords that some people think i'm crazy about although i know you are not among those people i um, love sharp swords swords are sharp you're, you're one of those one of the people who actually inspired me to start training with sharp swords um, oh i'm flattered yeah so with doing that stuff i think that um, it, and so certainly doing it in very light gear so you have no illusions of protection 
is educational in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so is doing very light gear fencing and especially drilling um, with blunt swords uh, before you put on all of your heavy sparring gear. I mean, obviously, injury prevention is important. And I don't want, uh, and the time you spend, or if you're training habits related to you being injured in a way that you can't fence anymore, then any lessons you learned are probably incidental to the fact that you're not learning at all. So yes. you have to strike a balance. But for me, that balance is much more tilted towards doing things in a controlled manner with no fencing gear and then saving gear for the occasions when it's absolutely required. Uh, I, I'm happy in just a, a fencing mask and a gorget and gloves for most of my training, although I have to wear a chest plate in my current club as well. But that's okay. it. Maybe yeah, I mean, protector. Most of my students do most of their training with just a fencing mask, maybe a pair of gloves. That's it. Yeah, um, but I don't think because... it's a... I think it's a a false dichotomy to say that you have to do one or the other. Some of the yeah, most successful clubs I know really invest heavily in both, and they have developed a training program that that switches back and forth. And I think that's the best way to go about it. Oh, sure. And, and again, my students will gear up and do. You know, if they're doing like heavy free play, they will gear up for it. But that's not yeah. what they spend most of their training time wearing. And if you never do that at all, then you're really missing something in your fencing experience. So exactly. Yes, same, same as tournaments. They're, I think they're a necessary part of any fencer's education. They're not my particular sort of primary area of interest, but I don't think we'd be better off without them, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you're obviously in Boston, and America is not doing terribly well in the corona stakes. So, yeah. how, how is that affecting your training, your practice, that sort of thing? Well, so I was, I came into the corona pandemic off of an injury, actually. Um, okay. So I haven't been since January, um, essentially, except that I mean, my partner, Kendra, and I sometimes pull out swords here in my living room and, and do <clears throat> a little bit of play around that way. But that's about it for me. Uh, my club has reopened very small group fencing, and she and I decided to stay away for now so that people who, both for safety concerns and just to, to leave the stuff of other people because the club can't accommodate everyone yet. Um, so my human experience for the past, what is it, eight months now has been almost entirely um, research. Okay. Which, you know, well, I've been through for many part, previous years of my HEMA life. Um, but we can talk about that if you want to. But yeah, this year has not been a great year for fencing for me. For the physical <laughs> sure. practice of fencing, at least. Yeah, it's not been a great year for anyone. Um, I was just, just curious to see how you guys are dealing with it. Uh, so your club is going back with <clears throat> small groups only and yeah. So you can they, they have to do virtual classes, um, okay. which are, are you know solo drills and conditioning and stuff yeah. of that sort, um, yeah. and occasional discussion sessions, um, which I think is generally positive. I mean, if there's one thing I hope that HEMA takes away from this pandemic, even once um, God willing there's a vaccine and, and things start to return to a more normal situation. Um, is 
continuing with the online offerings because there's been just a, a huge swell in the amount of free materials that are available online and also just clubs doing digital training, which I think most clubs never did in the past. But it's something yeah. that um, that I think I hope people continue to take advantage of because it would be it's a good complement to physical training, even in times when you don't need when you don't when you're not required to, and also for yeah. people who are have to travel and things like that regularly, give them more opportunities to participate. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of stuff you can do alone at home with just a stick or whatever. Um, so you can you can do research, but you can also do a lot of like weapon control training and fitness training and. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm teaching three days a week. Like when I moved to Ipswich four years ago, I was teaching only when I travelled. Um, but now I can't travel, and I'm missing my students. <laughs> I've started this basically kind of you know, forty minutes of get ready for the day, move like a martial artist sort of training. And you know what? When when we all go back to normal, if normal ever happens again, I am going to be carrying on doing that because it's a damn sight better start to the day than just sort of stumbling out of bed and wondering what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's like, it's, it's there. Yes, this is, it's a shitty situation, but there are some silver linings. And one of them is I've finally figured out that you can actually have a meaningful interaction with students over the internet. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you this year, I've also, it's also a time when I've regretted my particular choices of studies a lot, because it seems like virtually every, fencing system apart from Fiore and Lichtenauer comes with built-in solo training um, and yeah. that solo forms are a standard part of so many early modern traditions except for the two that I'm familiar with so yeah but I've I invented solo forms for training Fiore because I don't see how you I mean Fiore doesn't talk about solo forms because he doesn't talk about training at all but how are you going to how are you going to really learn to move in his style if you don't have like longish sequences of moves that come from his style to put together and practice? It's, it's like, it's, it's to me, it's basic. You have to have forms. Yeah. And I've tried to do the same with Lichtenauer in the past with, with limited success. Uh, and there's a lot more thought goes into this than, than it seems on the surface to have a really oh, good yeah. one. Um, I, I, I'm sort of baffled these days by some of the, more sophisticated Japanese and, and, and Chinese forms that just how much energy must have gone into, because they're, they're way more complicated than anything I've been able to come up with. Um, sure. Yeah, I, well, so I, I've had a certain amount of envy of everybody who has sort of <laughs> solar forms as part of their teaching that they can fall back on. Well, you're welcome to borrow any of my Fiore forms. Um, not much use to you for licking our stuff, but, you know, let's keep you moving. <laughs> Thing is, yes. like we have this, we call it the syllabus form, which is a, it's like a zip file for Fiori's system, okay. And it took uh, the very first iteration took about a year, and then we trained that and changed it and adapted it for about another three or four years, and then we realised that the the interpretation had moved on to the point where we should just bin that one all together. And over the next two years, I think it was. Um, me and a bunch of my regular students put together the form bit by bit over years. And it took, well, I think it became like finished in about 2012 and I started my school in 2001. So really it was 11 years in the making. 
So, so you know, they are. It's not easy to make a good form yeah. from scratch, but it is. It can be done. And now, now that I've now that I've gone through that process a few times, yeah, you know, there are there are sort of simpler ways to do it. Um, it doesn't need to take eleven years. Um, I mean, one of the key things you have to understand what what is the form in total. What is it? What is it supposed to do? Is it like a memory palace for? The techniques of the system, or is it supposed to generate, um, you know, teach you how to move in a certain way, or is it supposed to teach you how to generate power, or you know, what, what is it for? And once you can answer that question, putting together a, a form that accomplishes the goal is easier because you know what the goal is and you can test for it. Totally. Yeah. Well, we should we should actually you know when this is over maybe if you want some help going over some. Licking our things, we can we can get together and I'll give you a hand. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay. Um, all right. Now we are sort of heading towards time, um, and there are a couple of questions I like to sort of wind up with. And the first of those is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? <laughs> uh, when you sent the questions over, I asked Kendall if he didn't have an answer for me either. Um, what's the best idea I've never acted on? Um, I, I would have had a much better answer for you a year ago since my, so I've been unemployed since October and have managed to actually achieve some of the things that I've been talking about doing for years now. Um, so, uh, okay. things off that list. Finally, uh, my unemployment sometimes is a boon for the HEMA community. It seems <laughs> the primary, the primary, I'd say about half of what's in our was built when I was previous, the previous unemployment period for me, which was 2011 okay. to 12. Um, nice. so, uh, but I think the big things that I wish I could work on right now is more, um, more digital offerings in terms of um, videos for the most part. Because I know that I, oh, there's always interest in some of the lectures that I've given. And I've had this thought for a while now about trying to make some more bite-sized, um, like five to 10 minute snippets, which is how I structure my lectures is sort of five to 10 minute chapters um, that I move through, you know, just six or eight of them in a row. So. So putting some of those to video with some good illustrations and actually try to put some up-to-date information about uh, early modern historical martial arts on the internet to combat a lot of the really outdated stuff that I see get passed around. And I've had this idea for months now that I, I mean, I have actual recordings of lectures that I've already given that I could use for this and I've just never gotten around to it. But I think that we we need a lot more most of the video content that I see is either sparring flash tournament footage or people sharing information that I find to be dubious um, okay. without naming any particular channels. I think like, <laughs> like, like Matt Easton does brilliant stuff, but there are many others who are just spreading this information and I'd like to get better video out there. But it's up to us to actually make it and put it out there, and I just haven't gotten around to that piece. Well, I also uh, have, would like to. Wrong, Mike. 
Don't take this the wrong way, but um, I hope you stay unemployed for a while. Because <laughs> I would love to see those videos. <laughs> well, well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, yeah, sure. if I could find a way to actually make some money doing some of these research activities, then I could stay unemployed for longer. But well, that's, that's another that's conversation. That's trick, isn't it? Yes, yes. But I, I've been making my living doing this for a long time, and there are some tricks to it so again maybe when the call's over we should we should um get together and we'll figure out how to how to turn turn your enormous amount of work into at least a trickle of income yeah i would love that uh it's been a question that's hung over my head for a long time now because really looking hour is basically a full-time job for me even when i have another full-time job i sure. put in 20 30 hours a week minimum just doing looking hour stuff um, or I don't, and I feel terrible about it. Uh, so, and that's been my life for a long time. So, <laughs> actually, having time to work on this, the amount of work that I've done on Wicked Hour in the past six months has been just very stress relieving for me because there's been so many projects that have piled up, and I've worked through maybe half of them now. Wow. Okay. The other thing, the yeah. other thing that I would like to do in Wicked Hour that I have not yet done, and maybe next year, is foreign language wikis. Um, oh, yes. It's something that that Christian Claire and I have talked about for years now and I've never actually been able to set up, which is an actual network of Wixen Hour sites that are built in other languages with translations in those languages and articles of languages. So it's not just requiring English skills to access the sources, but That's you know, a- the French community and the Swedish community have done so much work in putting sources into their own native and the Spanish community too, in, mm-hmm. like translating into their native language. And that stuff is really hard to find because it's not really hosted anywhere central. So I would love to get at least for, you know, the six or seven biggest sort of nexuses of the HEMA community, get them their own language sites where they can work and build. That would be fantastic. Um, Actually, you've probably answered my last question, which is somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts. How would you spend it? I think that is the answer, isn't it? I mean, that's, it would be cool to be able to hire professional translators. Um, it's something that occurs to me, but they are not cheap. Um, I've priced out getting Wilson Myers treatise translated, and it would come to somewhere around $10,000. And I think you'd be looking at that for a lot of different treatises. At 10 cents a word, it just adds up. But actually, yeah. I have... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you, you go ahead. I had a different thought uh, when I when you raised that question, which was something else that I think that we that would really help the community a lot if we just had lots of money to throw around at projects would be offering scholarships to HEMA events um, yeah. or you know uh, some version of comping HEMA events, giving people travel and so on. Because to me, the HEMA community is not something that exists on the internet. The internet is a sort of a pale shadow of the community that exists in real life um, when we gather at events. And I mean, it also exists in clubs and so on, but going to a big event and actually meeting people and having a drink with them and taking classes with instructors you've only heard about um, is something that really is at the heart of what HEMA means to me. So giving people who don't have the financial resources the ability to, to go to these events, I think, would help all of us um, and really build the community in exciting ways. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. So, so half some of that money is going to professional translators. Some of it is going to foreign language versions of Wittenauer, and some of it is going to getting people who can't afford to go to events to go to events. Once and we I have the, again, yeah. I, I am so looking back to an event. I know that some events are already doing that um, and offering scholarships, but we could do a lot more if we had, you know, a rich benefactor who was going to fund it. Right, Sadly, and, and, I haven't met them yet. Yeah, and, and yeah, there are there are you know, people doing historical martial arts in countries with such um, low cost of living and low wages and what have you that they just can't reasonably fly to America or Europe for mm-hmm. a for a, a weekend event. It's just not not feasible. So yeah, getting getting more of those people to us would be great. So yes, excellent use of the money, sir. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, um, do you have any any last words for the listeners? Anything you particularly like them to do or be aware um, of? Uh, I wasn't expecting that question. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I think so. I was actually on a podcast last week, which hasn't been released yet. Um, well, I think will be released before this one where someone asked what the best way to get started doing HEMA projects was as a question. And I thought about it and thought it really, I think what they, so there are other people on this, on this chat too, who were talking about ways you can be of service to the community. And I think that the biggest way you can be of service to the HEMA community is to not think about the HEMA community so much and think about what you care about in HEMA. Um, think about what are the resources that you want what are the resources you wish you had? What are the things you wish somebody else had written about so you could read it? And start digging into that and, if, and produce the thing that you wish you had. And yeah. you may find that everybody else in the community also wants it. But even if they don't care, you still have that cool thing. So, I mean, that sort of guided a lot of my journey with the canal and with the book project and so on is this, like, when I see some opportunity and think this wouldn't actually be complicated i can see how to do it why has no one done this yet the answer is do it um and focus (laughs) on those things for you for your club um and maybe sooner or later it'll trickle out to the rest of the community so if you want to help build hema uh focus on the areas that you're passionate about and and everybody else will do the same and it'll get that that way i promise that is excellent advice sir thank you very much for joining me today michael it's been a delight Thanks, guys. This is great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with with Michael, uh, despite the technological issues. And remember to go along to the show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast, where you will get a full transcript of this interview, which should help with any of the uh, bits you couldn't quite make out. And of course, in addition to the transcription, you can get your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers, and Martial Artists. I would also like to thank my patrons, of course, on Patreon. Special thanks this week go to Andrew in Chicago, our new patron. Um, if you would like to join their swelling ranks, then go along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. So tune in next week when I'll be talking to longsword instructor and tournament fencer Brittany Reeves about all things sword related. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from, and I will see you next week.